0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, folks, Brian Nichols here from The Brian Nichols Show. Are you tired of partisan politics? Do you want to hear the news without that media narrative? Do you want to be more well-rounded as a person? Or how about this? Do you want to get to know and learn from noted entrepreneurs, elected officials, C-level executives, economists, and more? Well, how about this? Look no further. Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. Again, I'm your host, Brian Nichols. Go ahead and learn more at briannicholsshow.com. Okay, so hear me out. You like getting cash back for the normal stuff you buy throughout your week, right? Of course you do. Check out the DOSH app. That's D-O-S-H, DOSH. Dosh is available at the App Store and Google Play Store and securely connects to your credit or debit card. From there, every time you use those cards, Dosh searches for available offers. Once it finds one, Dosh automatically redeems the offer and converts it into cold, hard cash. Muchos dineros, brother! Then deposits that directly into your Dosh wallet. Click the link to download and join DOSH today and get $5 just for joining. This link is exclusively in the show notes of this episode. So show notes, special link, DOSH, $5 cash. Start on the path to quick and easy cash back on the things you love today. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast where we believe your voice is your most powerful
1: weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at BreakTheBellPod. And most importantly, never stop talking.
0: Prepare yourself. You're on The Run with Remzo W. Martinez. So by the time you're listening to this, congratulations, you've survived the election. I don't know who who won and who didn't, but this channel isn't about politics. This channel is not about the news. This channel is for people who actually take action in their lives and try and actually do something. Because the only freedom that ultimately matters is the freedom to make decisions and to have choices available so that way you can maximize what you can achieve in your life. And if there's one thing that, you know, always intrigues not only me but many of you, it's, you know, the dreams that often seem like they're too distant, like they're too far, that they're too hard. And one of the biggest pleasures of my life is actually getting to speak with many authors who or have already either come out with a book or are getting to work on their book for the first time. I think the one thing that is a positive that's come out of the pandemic is a lot of people have begun to really take into account how much time they have to actually go after projects, whether it's taking care of your health, taking a proper evaluation of your finances, or maybe even getting to that book you've wanted to write for so long. That's been so much fun. I think I've spoken to more authors in the last six months than I have in the past six years. And, um, you know, oftentimes people look around and they think, well... You know, I I have to be a J.K. Rowling or something. I've got to get that Harry Potter money in order to become an author. But every day we need to understand that the Internet, that the tools at our disposal, that the ability to learn and develop and become better authors are there at our disposal. It's just a matter of time as to whether or not you're actually going to go through with it. And I can certainly tell you that when I started as a blogger, to when I eventually became a researcher and then when I ended up being a columnist. Uh, you know, my my journey was still there. My first book is not great. My second book is good. But even now, I'm still developing. And one of the things I really love to do is get to speak with people who have already blazed a trail in their own lives, and they've tried to achieve that. Now, I'm going a little bit out of my depth today. For those of you that know a little bit about me you know that I've never really written anything other than nonfiction. My second book was fiction, but it, it was a historical fiction, so I still had to focus on a lot of stuff. Uh, one of the things I've never be necessarily been brave enough to do is to actually jump into the world of science fiction. That's something I've always wanted to do, but it's always been something that I felt I don't necessarily have the skill set for. Uh, so, you know, this episode is really not just an opportunity for you to learn, but hopefully I'm going to learn something out of it. And what I went ahead and did was I invented my friend Martin on. He's going to go ahead and you know, talk to you about his process and everything else. For those of you that don't know him, uh, his first book came out in 2015. It was titled Still Following. Less than three years after that, he was not only able to quit his day job, but he was able to write full time and effectively retire at 57. If you're a millennial like me, you're probably not going to be able to retire until 95. So what do you think about that? Other than that, uh, you know, he had a great career as a research scientist, and he actually has a weekly webcomic up on his blog. Uh, Martin, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, how many books have you written since 2015? Because I feel like the list goes up each time I go on Facebook and see you working on it. Well,
1: I, I, uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I've just released, uh, my seventh novel. Um, it's titled, uh, Shadows of the Sentinel. Um, uh, all science fiction primarily, although one of my books was, uh, swords and sorcery fantasy type. I tried that, and uh, I really enjoyed doing it. I'll, I'll probably end up doing uh, a little bit more of that.
0: So I, I, I got to ask, when did this start for you? Because a lot of people, uh, they're, they're afraid to try and balance a job and find time to write. And I know that you have a family yourself. So you not only had to balance your actual job, but then you had to balance your family life. When did you you know finally take the time to say, I'm going to start writing a book? And you know, what really sparked that? What were the challenges that you encountered? And what was it like when you were actually able to say, Hey, I'm, I'm done working and I'm just going to do this full time. What was that journey like? Because I think that is, that's the thing that stops a lot of people from doing it. They're, they're afraid or they don't know what first step to take.
1: Yeah. For me, it was a really long journey because I, I started trying to write a novel, um, in the mid eighties I started and i could never get far enough i would always get you know very excited about it and start uh start writing i get wrapped around the axle in the middle and i could never finish it and it plagued me for years and years and years that uh i couldn't do that and then finally it was always it was always on my bucket list you know a thing i wanted to do i wanted to write a novel um um, I had lots of ideas, I had lots of fits and starts on books, um, but it took a lot of planets to align to uh, actually make the whole thing happen. Actually the, the inciting incident in my writing career was the fact that um, out of the blue, my brother died at 52. Um, and. It was a real, a real kick in the gut for me, and it completely made me reassess so many things about my own personal life. Um, what did I want to get done? Because you never know when you're going to go. And um, writing a novel was one of those things that I really needed to do. Another planet that aligned there is that in the same uh, springtime, I got a severe spine injury. And what that did is it laid me up so that it's, I found out how fast, you know, Facebook and uh, Netflix can get boring. So I started writing just for my sanity's sake. And um, it's amazing if you sit down and you write every day. And uh, if you have an idea of what you're doing, uh, uh, suddenly you've got a novel. And, um, I actually was also lucky that I, um, actually knew a couple of novelists in my personal life and they gave me a lot of really great advice on how to get it done, how to, if you really want to do the thing, how to make the thing happen. And so I really credit them with a lot of really great advice about outlining and about treating writing as a, as a job, uh, instead of just waiting for the muse where, if you just sat around waiting to be inspired all the time, you'd never really get anything done. Um, I, if you sit down it, you know, with your coffee every morning, you sit down and you write like, like it's a job, um, suddenly inspiration knows where to find you. And so, uh, it's a lot more easy now to actually write a novel now that I have settled and I've moved away from, I, you know, I lived up, uh, in the outskirts of DC, um, in commuter range of where I was working at the time. We sold our, our huge McMansion there and we moved down to Fredericksburg and uh, got a nice house, got settled in here. And now to now writing a novel, it only takes me about 12 weeks to do the first draft of a novel now, and then another 12 weeks to do the editing. Um, I love the first draft part. That is fun for me, That is all. that's all fun. Editing is work, you know.
0: Editing is it, like taking editing is really work. and you know, like bleeding them dry. Yeah, there, there are. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are a few points that you brought up that you know I, I want to touch on because it just kind of hit me. Uh, I, I've got I've got some eerie similarities, and folks, we did not discuss this beforehand. This is the first time that we've actually had this conversation. But for me, uh, I, I started working on my first book in 2016. It would later come out in 2018. Um, one of the things that prompted me to do that was a good childhood friend of mine who I had known for 12 years. Um, this guy was in the ROTC program at Virginia Tech. He was an airborne guy. I mean, he was gonna go on to be a Green Parade, just a, a, a pinnacle of health and and just a really good person. And in in 2016, when I moved back from back to Virginia, um he died of a heart attack in his car as he was dropping his fiance off. And, uh, that was, that was one of the hardest situations I've had in my life because it was like losing a brother in a sense. I mean, we had, we had grown up together. We had gone through a lot of obstacles together and, uh, you know, it was, it, it was really hard on me. So that was one of those moments where it really made me, and, and it feels weird. As of this year, I'm officially three three years older than than he would have been. You know, he, he was he was he was 23 when he died. I'm turning 26 in in uh in December. It's just eerie knowing that I've been on the earth longer than he was. So that was one of those things that just it, it still it, it still kind of sends chills up my arm and stuff. It's it's strange, but that was one of those moments that really did it for me. I I mean, it was I. I've had, I've had death in my life. It's something that I'm familiar with, but that was the one that really affected me down to my core. And, and secondly, in, in, uh, at the end of 2016, I was in a car accident that deeply affected my neck and my head. And because of that, I live with chronic neck pain. And um, nothing is like sitting in bed on painkillers all day, wondering what are you going to do if you're going to be able to do anything that makes you wonder what you actually want to do. I think it wasn't until I had that opportunity that I actually started finishing up the first draft. Uh, with, with that in mind, you know, I, I don't think you have to go through something serious to become an author, but I think there are serious things that make authors serious writers. What, what's the mindset and what's the attitude that you think separates actual career writers from people that think about it but never actually take the step to doing it?
1: Yeah, I'm, I actually belong to several writers' groups, so I get to interact with um, budding authors quite often. And I think that, for me, at least, I can only tell you what it does from my perspective. I one of the lessons that I learned that actually differentiates uh, a professional author. Um, is not inspiration and it's not um, creativity. It's discipline. It is actually treating it like a job. It is a job. It's a career. And if you if you don't feel like writing and you still are gonna go and make yourself sit down at the desk and actually bring the thing up and and do the work, suddenly. Um, Once you get to a point, the discipline brings success into it more than anything else, more than, you know, reading all the books you can find about writing, more than, you know, all the creativity in the world, all the ideas that you can have in the world. And then the other lesson I learned is that you got to stick to a single project and see it all the way through to fruition. You have to hammer through. Um, there's, I call it um, chasing butterflies. Have you ever seen a dog in a field chasing butterflies? And then suddenly there's a different butterfly. And it goes off in this. I know so many authors that'll start writing a novel and then they'll have this other great idea. And they said, well, and then they'll say, oh, I've got writer's block on my novel. So I'm going to go work on this thing. And they never finish anything. That's um, a real landmine for, for uh, most authors and that's what really stops most of the authors that I know from actually getting to the end where you actually have it polished and done and all the business parts and all of the mechanics of putting a book together everything that you need to do to actually get it out there and get successful and then move on to the next one and um so many people get wrapped around the axle, just like I used to for decades. And that lesson has really helped me a lot. Um, Also, it helps me that I'm a, I'm a really big time outliner. I do really, real, really detailed. I I got, I got, I got
0: to tell you, my, my biggest problem is that I do outlines, but I'm a pantser. I'm constantly, you know, I, I feel like I have to write and hopefully I'll figure things out as I go along. Do you think that that's the only way that has helped you you know, finish something from start to finish? No, I think that every
1: author has to recognize what kind of writer that they are. And because I'm a very organized, um, outlining type of author, uh, for me, it is absolutely proof against writer's block for me. Because when I start... My novel I mean it actually starts on pad and paper where I will start outlining. I have very specific methodologies that I use for outlining now, and like the outline for my uh, most recent novel it has uh, it was about thirty six pages long, and it ends up the entire novel scene by scene chapter by chapter season, but scene by scene. I take that and I apply it into the writing tool that I use, and I'm good. I'm ready to go when I sit down in the morning with my cup of coffee. I uh, never have writer's block because I know exactly what I need to work on. And if I don't feel like working on this particular chapter, I may go and do another one. Um, but it's very organized for me, and it's it has turned out to be a successful process for me. Now it's not for everyone. Some people I know just cannot bear the thought of having to do an outline and then in fact can't do it. And, uh, they're complete pantsers, but a lot of them get painted in the corner horribly with, uh, with, with that kind of stuff. I, I Especially science advise,
0: yeah. I, I do not advise people do what I do. I, I think the only reason why I'm able to get by with it is because a lot of the work I've done is nonfiction. Therefore the outline is there. And all my notes are there. So it really prevents me from going off on too many tangents. But I will say for the attempts that I have had at doing fiction, pantsing never works. Because this is why I think so highly of science fiction writers. You have to know your stuff inside and out. And when you're creating these worlds, you're creating so many different layers of it. You cannot afford to forget one detail. And that is the one science skill. fiction
1: That's readers. So science fiction readers are absolutely the most um, detailed readers that there are. I, I, you know, I like to really re, as as a researcher for my career, my entire career, I was a uh, research scientist, so I use those skills in writing science fiction, and I like the science in my books to be right and. So that if you get all the real science right, when you, you set your, when you dip your toe in the waters that are just across the line into faster than light travel or artificial gravity, um, you're more plausible and it 's really funny to get an email from a reader that says, "Oh my God, do you realize that the, set, the the space station with the rings moving it." 22 meters per second gives you exactly one G if the ring is one kilometer across. And I go, well, yeah, I kind of knew that because I figured that out. They actually wrote it that way on purpose. <laughs> I never expected anybody to, to, uh, to, to detect that in there, but they do. I mean, and, and, uh, and they'll happily email you about it. It's, uh,
0: I Oh my gosh. I, uh, I I, I I host another podcast with a friend of mine, Mark Claire. It's called the Second Print Comics Podcast, and we discuss the the comics and pop culture that made us the fans who we are. And it wasn't until I did that that I realized I like I, I know that authors get a lot of hate, and like with the comic book community, it's very much like that because continuity is a big stickler, and if you mess up one thing, people will never forgive you. Uh, I kind of want to rewind just a little bit uh, You know what you said about writer's block I thought was really interesting. I'm interested to hear what more you have to say on that because, and this is my opinion, this is purely me, I don't believe that writer's block is as real of a menace as people say. I believe that most people use it as an excuse. And because of that, it's become somewhat of a cultural cliche. Mm
1: -hmm. For my opinion is... I have no personal evidence that writer's block exists at all. I have never had it. If there is something opposite from writer's block, writer's gush, I guess, I've, that's what I've got. I've got more ideas in my notebooks here than I will ever be able to write novels for until I'm dead. So writer's block is never a thing for me. Um, if I, you know, there there is... Issues that I do have, um, things like loss of momentum. If I get interrupted or if I um, break a project in the center and I uh, s- stop writing for a few days in the middle, it takes me so much time to get ramped back up and get in the groove to finish. Uh, that's why I like to hammer through first drafts nonstop, uninterrupted.
0: Yeah, I feel – and you probably understand this having been a researcher yourself. Like I, I did policy analysis for a while. I, I used to think that writing white papers was fun and would change the world uh, for politicians and think tanks. And the, and the one thing I learned about that, which is why it, what helped me in college, I was never necessarily a great student, but I could always write myself to an A. I guess that was the only skill I had. But the one thing I realized was as long as you know your left and right limits – and you understand what the end goal should look like. Actually, getting there is is never the problem, and that's why I, you know, I've had like sagging middle syndrome and stuff like that happen. But writer's block, I, I think, for every. For every two, cl- I'm sorry. For every three clients I've worked with who are finishing off their first draft or something, uh, two of them will say that writer's block have prevented them from finishing. And then, as I try and walk them back to understand where they got lost, I realize that it wasn't a lack of inspiration, but it was a lack of direction and understanding where they wanted to go. And I think part of that is one, and and these are all these are primarily fiction writers. But they, they they lose an idea of what they want their book to end like, and then the others who are doing nonfiction, they they tend to drift away from what their initial thesis was, so it never has anything to do with lack of a you know lack of understanding of what to put there, but it's usually just a lack of focus, and that you know also, I think comes from lack of discipline.
1: I've also seen it on several occasions that it is a very common kind of self-sabotage for authors. I mean, they start to get close to, you know, having a, a book ready to publish and suddenly writer's block, um, you know, grips them with fear because they're afraid somebody might read it. Somebody might give them a bad review. Um, somebody might say something awful about their magnum opus and, and uh, in a, it cripples some people so that they actually never finish stuff. And uh, I think that one of my superpowers is I don't give a shit what people think. <laughs> you know, I hey you know hey, you give me a one-star review? I love those. Thanks for buying my book, dude. <laughs> uh, you know, it I I you know it really is true that you know there's so many people there, they're like so afraid of reviews. It's like what the hell is. It. you should be working on your next book now forget the reviews don't even read them uh, what, my what wife were... reads them it's hilarious <laughs> you know she'll, she'll she she loves to read them she you know loves those one-star reviews you know and she, my favorite was I got a one-star review and it said this is science fiction I hate science fiction thanks for buying my book <laughs> I'm just like well, why did you buy the book it's funny. The, but, the internet's
0: uh, a weird place. What's that? The internet's yeah, a yeah, weird it, place. It really
1: is, and it, and it's funny. They Amazon is really weird about reviews too. That I I was so proud of that review all the time. I wanted to like quote it in, in some of my, my my subsequent books, but Amazon took it down. I uh, I don't know why they delete reviews periodically. Seems like, but it's it's a, a very interesting phenomenon Everybody, when uh. In my writers group, it's funny. My uh, the person that runs the writers group, um, and all the published authors in the group, if they get a one star review, they get this little uh, troll. You know those trolls that are, uh, got got hair. The- oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. They get we get that as a trophy. <laughs> it's pretty funny. It <laughs> uh, takes takes the edge off for a lot of people that uh, that care.
0: I, I always felt like one-star reviews end up actually proving your point on some things. Yeah. But like for me, with my books, because they were primarily political nonfiction, no one ever attacked me as an author. They were always giving me one-star reviews because they were attacking the premise of my books. So then I would use that in like newsletters and marketing material and end up making more sales because of them. If you can learn how to make money off of your haters, that's an amazing thing. But I, I am curious. When you finished your your draft for your first book, and you were actually getting ready to edit, and you were eventually able to publish it, were you nervous about anything? Oh yeah,
1: because um, not knowing what I was doing when I did my first novel, um, I uh, it, the first draft of my first novel clocked in at over a thousand pages. And how
0: many words is that?
1: No, oh, it was two hundred and forty thousand words, I think. Wow! And it was, it was way too big. It it was just
0: huge. Yeah, I was just like, you know, I know, right, fi- I know fiction typically has to be bigger, but that's that's like yeah, that's Lord like of the like Rings level James right there.
1: Thick. It, <laughs> and it was like crazy. And it, and I had too many characters, and I because of the way that I wrote it and in my inexperience about doing things, the first thing I had to do was go back and uh, really cut with a chainsaw um, a lot of it out. In fact, a lot of the th- uh, stuff that I um, cut out, I actually used in other novels. And in fact, the first three novels in my um, career are, it's actually a trilogy, the Solstice 31 trilogy. Every one of those novels actually begins at the same instant in time. It is just kind of a Rosh Rashomon- Story where it shows the experience of different people from the same event and from different perspectives. And by the time you get to the last book, all the characters from all the books have come together for the ultimate climax, as it were. But oh, wow. it was really fun writing those things, and uh, um, it's still fun,
0: still really, really fun. I think the biggest thing that I try and let people know. Is you know for for me, the moment I came out with my first book was almost no different than the moment I came out with my second book. That rush of excitement, that you know that that experience of getting really just to own a couple days amongst uh, amongst your you know people that support you and friends and family and coworkers. Uh, what, what was your experience like when you came out when you, with your first book? You know what you know what what was that real moment? really like well the first really
1: big moment was when I got the first proof in the mail when it was the uh, you know an actual physical edition that you can hold in your hands like suddenly it's like holy shit this is real and, and the, the next biggest moment like that I was really nervous when um, it actually got published and people could buy it uh, the very first review that I got that was really awesome and um which oddly enough was was a was a guy in australia of all places was the first guy to um, put a review in uh the next thing was the first royalty check oh that, my god yes yeah. <laughs> after that, it was it was uh the first royalty check and um it was a physical check i still have it i deposited it with my my phone but i still have it and uh I was all excited about that. I mean, I didn't care that it was only $241 and, you know, I took my wife out for an incredibly, you know, good dinner, you know, and uh and I uh was very very excited about that, which was way different than the next royalty check when it came. It was so much bigger. Suddenly I was scared shitless about taxes.
0: <laughs> that's <laughs> so, a good problem to have though at that point.
1: That's a good problem to have. <laughs> And because my wife and I, we both have great jobs, you know, we didn't need that money. So I just opened a separate saving, a bank account and all my royalty checks just got piled into to that, that um, account. And uh, so, it, it, you know, I figured, okay, I'm going to have to pay like, you know, 35% of that to, to the government come tax time because they're not withholding anything. The way Amazon does it, it's all straight up 1099s or whatever the, the hell the uh, um, thing works. And uh, the funny the funny conversation for that was at year's end, we were talking to our financial advisor. And now this is for like my 401k and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, the investment portfolio bullshit, all that. And uh, just at the end of that conversation, my wife wanted wanted me to ask her about this to mm-hmm. see if she had any recommendations. So I, I brought the file that had all the info associated with them. She looks at me and uh, she says, dude, you need an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the funniest part was she recommended an accountant, which I still have. I love I, I, I love my accountant. And so I get there and I take all this stuff in to the accountant and the accountant's going over everything. You know, frankly, she can't believe that, you know, I haven't spent any of the money that I brought in. And she looks at me and she, said, she says, literally, she says, dude, you need a lawyer. <laughs> oh, it just keeps escalating. Yeah, it did. And it really escalated from there. Suddenly, you know, I, I, you know, had created an LLC that's taxed as an S corp and, you know, all this other stuff and, uh, royalty payments get, um, applied in there and there's all these weird rules and, you know, I just let the, 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 the lawyer and the accountant take care of all that. And, um, because it's not writing, it's actually really interesting. The very first year after I, um, started writing full time, I spent a lot of time on the business end of it. And uh, it, it is it is crazy all the details associated with it, and it'll just and, uh, and you self published, right?
0: Um, yeah, I know in that fact, you have your own. I know that you have your own imprint, but you started just like a generic Amazon self published author. space in twenty fifteen. Oh wow, yeah, I, I remember, remember that, that now. Yeah, they they changed, have, yeah, they uh, changed it to uh, KDP. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so. Um, So you're correct. I am, uh, self-published. They call them indie published now because it's kind of a, um, I had created a small press that is an independent corporation that I actually use to publish my works through that actually has turned out to be a really good tool for being able to, um, uh, foster the business associated with it. Um, it's, uh, it's really interesting that the difference between self-published authors and indie published authors and brick and mortar, old school published authors. And right now, because the industry is changing so much, the lines are really blurring between all of those. And if the the books you publish are um, indistinguishable from big house um, books, um, you can professionally make your way it is and i also happen to get really lucky i i'm i'm not saying my books are the best books in sliced bread or anything but it turns out that the genre that i'm writing in which is science fiction for adults who have one click set up on their kindle (laughs) right because you know, the, the guy that's on the train, Oh, I need something else to, to, uh, uh, read. What am I going to read? And then, and then the Amazon recommendation engine fires up and, um, uh, starts working. And I was very lucky because my single biggest marketing success was that I happened to have a friend in college who's now famous. (laughs) And, uh, and uh, his name's Dan Poppenmeyer He's uh, uh, he created the show Phineas and Ferb. He's Doofenshmirtz on that show. My anyway, gosh, that's
0: my childhood right there. Yeah, well, well, Dan
1: was an old an old friend of mine from college and stuff. And uh, uh, he had friended me on Facebook, and you know we caught up, and it's really funny. He worked on The Simpsons for many, many years. Well, it's funny. He tweeted out one day. Hey, check it out. My college buddy Marty wrote a book. And I like sold 7,000 books in one day. And it was crazy. And it was a a giant, giant spike. My book went to number one on the hard science fiction category and all this kind of stuff. But more than that, I learned something about the Amazon machine. There is this ginormous artificial intelligence driven database machine on Amazon that once you get enough sales associated with your book, once your author name starts to get associated with a genre and a type of reader, that little recommendation engine on the bottom starts to get populated. And I was extremely lucky I mean, I am talking super lucky because the recommendation engine was coming up for the people that were buying The Martian. Hey, if you like The Martian, you might like this book. And suddenly my sales were going up and up and up, and I needed an account. Well, was that,
0: oh my gosh, was that just when the book came out, or was it when the movie came out and then the book became a bestseller again? It was uh, before the movie came out oh wow so you you were really there on the ground level for that
1: yeah and uh, that that was for still falling and and I can understand why they recommend that because still falling is a Robinson Crusoe kind of story guys get stranded on a on a planet turns out to have humans on it already anyway my second novel because the first novel was so popular the second novel the sales immediately caught in people were you know you know clamoring for it and the recommendation engine for my second novel started gearing up people that were reading the expanse were being recommended my second novel the broken cage because it's a kind of the same kind of story as the expanse people like the expanse oh you might like this too so that book actually hit number one at one point in the hard science fiction category on um uh, Amazon, so it went from there, and uh, it, it's all about the recommendation engine on Amazon. And if I knew how that thing worked under the hood, I'd write a book about that. Oh, you'd make so much money!
0: Up. You do ne- never, even if you still figure that out, never give that information out for free. <laughs> yes, I know exactly. As somebody because that would ask you to give it to me for free, don't give it out for free.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting because um, the. Um, the genre, the um, the timing, the time of year that something gets released—they're all they're all very complex cogs in this machine under the hood that I have absolutely no idea how it works.
0: I, I am kind of curious because we've been kind of touching on it with this with this focus. Do you find that? And how, how do I put this? I find a lot of writers are really bad marketers. And I'm right. not talking like bad marketers. I mean, I saw this with journalists. They are shitty promoters. And I never understood why somebody who has put so much effort into writing and publishing a book, they don't understand that if you want people to actually read it and buy it, you actually have to promote it. And I, I'm just curious. Did you ever find the promotion part of it? one daunting or two did you like it as just the next phase of the book process because a lot of people see them as divorced I see them as just part of the same long campaign
1: it is a a constant campaign because um if you if you actually want you want to do it as a job um the business side of the job is just as important as the creative writing part and a lot of authors don't get that 100% don't And they they completely divorce themselves from the book after they've pressed publish. And they never do another thing. And um, then they just wonder why, hey, I've only sold 16 books, why why is that? And uh, the marketing is really important. And it's actually the hardest part of the whole thing. And in fact, um, after I retired, I actually hired a PR firm I was making, I was making enough money. I could afford it. And, uh, they did a big rebranding and there's all, all of those, these marketing things. And when they tools up a new website for me and it was all very exciting and, you know, all, all uh, new covers on all my books and all that. And it really did help for the sales and everything, you know, even new business cards and, you know, uh, iconography and stuff like that. And, uh, uh, and I, I spent a lot of money, uh, with them and learned a lot and it's really interesting the things that um generate sales are stuff that i never would have expected because like i ever since i started my writing journey i've been blogging it, my, the blog that i have um goes back to when i just finished my first draft just finished writing it and started editing it and that's when my blog starts you, sh- you see the early shitty covers that I ha- was thinking about. You, you know, you I go through all, all of the shenanigans for all the publications, all my books. And it's very interesting. And people actually like seeing the saga once they, be, you know, become a fan and stuff. And but it's really cracks me up is that uh, one of my college buddies is an artist. He's a commercial artist for uh, for his career. And he started sending me these dumbass cartoons of me being an author and my cat, you know, my favorite cat who's constantly in pictures with me on Facebook and is always in my face and all that. And the, the premise of the comic was it's me being an author and my cat wisecracking like he's my editor and my agent. And so I started putting these up as a lark on my blog. I started getting more hits on the stupid cat cartoon than anything else <laughs> I did on the blog. So I actually credit that stupid dumbass cartoon, which is still comes up every Sunday. I still do it every Sunday. I, I actually credit that book with a lot of sales because people come to uh, my blog, they see, you know, on the ribbon on the side, the books that I have available and stuff like that. And it was to the point that in my novel, Virtues of the Vicious, the cat made an appearance in this novel, and oh my god, the email I got <laughs> about from people loving the cat, demanding that the cat be in my next novel. I had to put the cat in the next goddamn novel. I can't believe it. <laughs> so the cat was very popular, and it's really funny because I would I would find uh, I would. Have these mystery spikes in sales? It's like, what the hell is this all about? And then at the same time frame, my wife would say, "Oh yeah, they were talking about your book on that Siamese cat rescue," you know. Facebook group that's got thirty thousand members, and that that was really an interesting uh, business component that taught me you. In your life, you know, you develop a lot of tribes in your life. And, you you know, I, I've always been reluctant to, like, market to, like, my friends and my family and stuff. I'm really uncomfortable about that. I have a separate author Facebook page for my own personal family, you know, friends and family Facebook page and stuff like that. But it, I found out that there's tribes in your life that when they find out that you are an author, they get really excited about it. And you actually um, can sell a lot of books to good effect there. And um, it's interesting because, like, things like um, uh, this PR firm said, oh, hey, what have you been doing about press releases? And I go, press releases?
0: (laughs) Really? I Um, I had a policy for myself. Never write your own press release. Yeah, and, and I will till the day I die. Just farm that out to someone else.
1: Yeah, I I, uh, I believe that's true. But it's but it's interesting. The college I went to in my hometown um, ended up getting a press release, and I got interviewed by the lifestyles editor for the for the magazine about my first three novels. And right there, hometown boy does good. Suddenly, I you know had another spike in sales and stuff. It's it's really interesting the marketing machine because you never know what spins it up, you never know the the timing, you never know, um, I, and it's really weird because Amazon makes it really hard.
0: So oh, their their entire business is based around how to get your how to skyrocket your ship, how to skyrocket your book I, to uh, you know be number one on a uh, you know. Uh, Uh, the Kindle lending library and everything else. And all you have to do is pay $15 a month and eventually you'll find the right keywords to make yours the best selling book in your category. And I look at that and it's like, if people, if people have to pay you monthly to figure that out, then are they really getting what they actually paid for?
1: Yeah. I, I, I don't get that. And the weird thing is, is it's even made more complicated because I have a lot of international sales you know, I sell a lot of books all around the world. I kind of, you know, I kind of thought, okay, I expect that. And, you know, I'll sell books in Australia and the UK and Canada and in other places. But, I mean, Greece is a big buyer. I, Greece? What is, they love science fiction in Greece? You know, Japan's a big buyer. Japan, they always pay their royalties first. And the weird thing is, is Amazon, every one of those regions in the world have their own Amazon their own reporting, their own review systems. You know, I I sell a lot of books in Germany, and I have reviews on on the German Amazon site written in German. My book isn't in German. (laughs) So that is a very interesting phenomenon, but it makes it impossible, almost impossible, to figure out how many books you sold because the accounting is completely different for Kindle. It's separate from Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. It's separate for the paperback sales. It's separate for my hardcover sales. And I actually sell a lot of audio editions too. All my novels have um, been recorded in Audible. And um, so all of those things are completely separate revenue sources. And all of those things require attention that if you pay too much attention as an author... It's too distracting. So I've just given up. I used to try to do spreadsheets and try to monitor all that crap and figure out, okay, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Where, where can I you know, spend my marketing dollars to get the greatest impact and stuff? And they, the, the reporting facility is just so, so whack. And, you, you know, I, I just don't want to spend the time doing it. So now the only thing I monitor is how much money gets deposited in my account every month.
0: Literally though. I mean, I, I've seen massive spikes and giant dips and it got to the point where it was like, you know, it stopped trending after like a couple of weeks. My first book was bestseller in its category. My second one wasn't. But, you know, it got to the point where it's like, you know, I still I still know I'm selling books and most of the time when I try the hardest, I realize I'm getting the least returns, probably because I'm bugging people but you know after a while your your books kind of you kind of have to move on to a degree to uh, move on to your other projects and what i tell people is like as you write one book you're going to want to write another and as long as you keep writing publishing and marketing all you have to do is just repeat the process and eventually it'll you know, it'll be a compounding effect. And two things I want to touch on that that you brought up. I mean, in terms of marketing, I want to give a shout out to two of my publicists I've worked with, uh, Gabriella Hoffman and Chloe Agnos. I worked with them, uh, you know, each for one of my books. Uh, Gabriella Hoffman worked on my first book. Chloe Nagnos worked on my other. And uh, you know, I'd rec- I recommend them always to people. They were both fantastic. But you know, for, for a lot of uh, indie authors and self-published authors, a lot of their big concerns is being taken seriously. And What I tell people is, listen, if you're going to go in and you're going to put all the upfront costs towards self-publishing your book, you might as well make sure you have a really good marketing plan. I actually took up a second job just to pay my publicist. I, I, it mattered to me that much because my first book had problems. I mean, it, it did. And luckily, because I had a good publicist, I was able to outsell a lot of my colleagues that were doing it through traditional publishers. Uh, I, I've got the story of um, uh, a guy I know. He wrote through Regnery, a book about immigration, and it was endorsed. It had a written testimonial by Jeb Bush, and he's never seen um, you know an actual check from that book he got like a a small advance but it never made enough money to actually give back royalties and that's something people don't realize just because people buy your book a year after it comes out still does not mean you're making money if they haven't broken even with those costs and for his promotion uh you know the, the publisher only did like two weeks worth of stuff they had press release and got him on one radio station but that was it uh i had a really hard working publicist who just worked only for me and she worked and both of them worked their heart outs. And luckily the first one was able to get a lot of attention. It was endorsed by Ben Shapiro. And when that happened, the sales went crazy. And then for the second one, it was a different audience because it was historical fiction. It 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 did how it did. But you know, it, it was almost indistinguishable. People thought that it was done through a traditional publisher. And it was like, no, all I did was I put in the, the effort and I put in the work with these professionals to make it that way. Uh, and secondly, I mean, what you said about developing a tribe—I don't think people understand this enough. We live in a hyperconnected world where we often look at numbers, but I would rather have, you know, five hundred people who support me in every project I do because they genuinely believe in me than have five 000, than have five million strangers that will never support anything I do. And I, I say this as a positive, but my first book had problems. It was, you know, I did it very amateurly. There are problems with the cover. There are problems with the text. There were typos. There were problems with it. And I was, I was twenty one, twenty two when I came out with it, and I, I made a lot of mistakes. I thought I did a good job, but you know, I, I got a lot, a lot of one star reviews because of the process. Because I had made those mistakes, what I did was I crowdfunded for my second book citing the mistakes I did of my first book I raised all the money I needed to self publish within 3 weeks because people saw the work I put in they had liked my content and my products before that and they believed in me and they were able to help me so that way I didn't have to spend a dollar out of pocket on it and it's those people that keep me going and keep me working on other projects because they value me and I value them and it's that tribe network that will support you through Everything else you do, I don't think enough people understand the importance of that. Because mm. these people, without you even having to ask, will give you their hard-earned money. You better deliver them something good. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it, it's one of these things that I don't think a lot of people realize because they they just want it to be that point where they're just becoming rich and they're just becoming famous. But I think, you know, really being able to achieve certain levels of freedom in your life are more important. Um, to, to kind of, you know, rewind a little bit, uh, what was the conversation like when you decided that you were actually going to quit your career to become a full-time author? What was the conversation like with your wife for that?
1: Well, that is another funny story. I, uh, I wasn't expecting to retire, not even close. And, um, I, uh, I typically take the time between Christmas and New Year's off for, you know, vacation in my work. And um, the Friday before uh, my vacation, I had my year-end, you know, meeting with my financial advisor. And thank God my wife was there because, you know, how accountants, they love pie charts and bar charts and, you know,
0: you gotta be analysis. paid
1: for something. Yeah, trend analysis and worst case scenario, best case scenario. And she's done doing this big presentation, and she leans across the desk and says to me, "Why the hell are you still working?" <laughs> and then she points at my wife and she goes, "You know, you could, you could quit your job too." <laughs> and and it's like, wow, we're like, what? <laughs> And uh, and she went, she went in detail, and, and I got to tell you, she did a great job making my wife comfortable about, <laughs> about the whole thing. And the funny thing was, I wasn't expecting to retire, but on January 2nd, when I went back into the office, I had my resignation letter uh, ready. And I, I resigned. Uh, Fe- uh, my last day was February 16th of uh, 2018. Yeah, 2018. It's uh it's going to be a thousand days
0: soon on vacation. <laughs> what, what, what does it feel like? Did, did you ever think you were going to be able to retire this early from writing? No, all I had,
1: you know, I figured, oh, okay, 65. That'd be cool. You know, that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to work till my 70s or 80s like some people do forget that i don't want to do that but i figured just to do the thing i would have to work until i was 65 i was fully prepared for that and um never in my wildest dreams did i think that uh something would go well enough that i could i could pull something off and uh um i am very lucky i am absolutely you know, I don't want anybody to think that I've got all the answers and this follow the path that Marty took. I just got lucky. I don't have any idea how all of this happened. And um, but boy, I, I love my new lifestyle with uh, writing full time. It is um, it is a pure joy every day. I, I get to drink coffee and make stuff up and then people send me money. How cool is that? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously.
0: Uh, So, so, sir, as we got to start wrapping things up, I'm just curious if you could go back, like, let's say 20 years to your younger self, uh, what, what some of the advice you would give if you could? Oh, I really wish I really wish I had started earlier. Now, the weird
1: part is, is 20 years before I started writing, you didn't have the opportunities you have now the technology of print on demand and the ability to actually um, do indie publishing is a godsend for me. And um, uh, there, there's authors in my current um, writers group that I uh, have mentored them all the way through to, you know, their publication and their sales are, are doing very, very well as, uh, as well. And they are, you know, in their late 20s. And if I'd, have, if I'd have been doing the thing when I was in my late 20s, you know, it would be a whole different house I'd be buying as I <laughs> moved to Fredericksburg. Um, but uh, what's the advice I would get? Just do it. I mean, I think that so many people are afraid for so many reasons. The thing is, if I can write a book when my spelling, grammar, and punctuation sucks. Anybody can, okay? You can hire people to fix those things, which I highly recommend. Use professional. Never
0: never skimp on editing.
1: Oh, you can always tell a really horrible self-published book because of the editing, because of the cover, because it's not professional at all. And it's it's not an expense to pay for a good editor. It is an investment to pay for a good editor. This next novel I'm doing, I might pay for a, for, uh, a good editor and a post-edit proofreader too. I I, didn't, I just recently found out that that's a thing. And uh, I've been using my wife as the post-edit proofreader. She's pretty good. Uh, but even she misses some stuff every now and then. And I think it's hilarious when stuff gets missed, when stuff actually gets to print. Oh, man, I love that. You know, a, a reader will send me an email. Oh, I love your book. But there's a typo on page <laughs> 2. I love that. I love that. Because I immediately go out and fix it. So whenever there's another, you know, edition, I disappear. And uh, it's really interesting. The, the uh, audio producers often find typos as well. Because they, you know, working with the narrators that's a whole different business part it, it's very I, interesting i
0: i've been I, i've been uh helping produce my audio book for my second book for about a year now we're we're finally finishing off the finer details, so that way we could submit it off to audible for the final quality assurance review and i remember uh my friend who narrates the book johnny adams there were several times where he called me at like 1 a.m and he's like remzo hey uh yeah, this doesn't sound like something someone would actually say. And I'm like, well, what, what is it? What, what, what the fuck do you have to say? And he's like, you, you wrote it like this. And, like, that's not how people talk. Can I, can I put a comma there? Can I, like, you know, not say it with an exclamation point? And I'm like, just make the change.
1: <laughs> just do it. <laughs> yeah. And, in fact, if you hire the right people and, and give them the freedom to do their best for you – they make you look better, and it and it's great. I love that. I, re, I really love it. My my most recent novel, the narration. I I took another step farther, out and hired two narrators. I have a duet, a man and a woman, in this one, and it, it's coming out really good. I am I'm just really, um, very excited about it. It's uh, um, it's it's the first book that my wife says she loves. <laughs> Wow, it's always good to make your wife cry. Trust me, <laughs> that's the
0: best seal of approval.
1: Yes, it is, and, and you know she. You know, it's like she's always uh, really encouraged my imposter syndrome. You know, like uh, <laughs> somebody was going to come around the corner suddenly and suddenly reveal me that I'm a fraud, even though it's like novel number seven. You know, and uh, but she's like. Saying, "Hey, you know, you're getting pretty good at this." <laughs> and, uh, he's thanks, honey.
0: You know, it pays the bills, and then take out the
1: garbage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, oh so my gosh. Is, Hey, I, I don't under don't don't underrate the importance of having a spouse that is supportive. Trust me, um, that is one of the the key cornerstones to uh, success. If you're being a full time author trust me having a supportive spouse is is worth
0: the weight in gold awesome so martin this has been an awesome talk i've learned a lot i know the listeners have learned a lot if people want to go ahead and one get your books i highly recommend people do that especially your new novel that just came out but people want to check out your blog follow you on social media i'll have everything in the show notes but for people that want to hear it where, where can they find everything
1: Everything's on Amazon. Um, I also have a, my personal website is martinwilsey.com. dot com, um, but Amazon is, you can get it in Kindle, um, paperback, hardcover, and Audible. All one stop shopping. Um, go to my author page and you can see all of my short stories, all of my um, novels. And if you go to my website, there's a lot of freebies up there too. I think there's like a dozen um, short story. Um, audibles up there for free. So it's the drug dealer model of marketing. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you give them a little taste for free and then they buy the audiobooks. So uh, <laughs> it's a uh, very effective marketing as it were. What, and, whatever works. Uh, yeah. Whatever works. And in fact, in fact, it does work. If people, you know, for free can listen to one of your stories for 30 minutes, uh, they can uh, just get a taste. And I think that's an important part, especially uh, with like Amazon, and the preview pages, you get to read so many pages into the novel. If in those pages, the reader is scared shitless not to find out what happens next. Hey, you've just sold the book.
0: So it's all good. Awesome stuff. Well, Martin, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having for coming on today. Hey, thanks for having me, dude. Hey, folks, you you know, conversations like this, they they cost you nothing. And I don't ask for anything in return, but it it, it literally helps make my day. Please, leaving a five-star rating and review on Amazon helps the show reach more people. And if you enjoy conversations like this, if you're a budding author or somebody that just wanted to understand the process more, you know, share this episode with a friend. It's amazing what happens when we connect with each other and we're able to share our talents and our knowledge so that way we become better and help elevate other people. As always, go ahead and do me a favor. Go ahead and follow me across the social media space on Al Gore's amazing internet at heyremso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O. And if you're not on Parler, what, what what's going on with you? I'm just at Remso. If you ever see Remso 2 pop up on there, you have my permission to cyberbully them. Remember, the only people who are free are those with options. I'm Remso W. Martinez. Take care. I'll talk to you later this week.
1: Check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com